Welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. We always start with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on. And then we teleport back to today to talk to experts about how that world that we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. This episode, we're starting in the year 2047. Hello, and welcome to the Museum of Non-Human Art. I'm Magenta and I'll be your guide. The Museum of Non-Human Art was founded just last year, in 2046, as a museum dedicated to showcases the wondrous possibilities that arise when computers, robots, algorithms and machines of all kinds are given the freedom to create art. Here at the Museum of Non-Human Art we celebrate creativity, openness, tolerance, and generosity. You'll find the museum organized into four sections. The North Wing is dedicated to art made by and for robots. Some of you here are humans I see, so please be aware you may not be able to see some of these pieces and be careful to look out for signs so you don't accidentally walk through an artwork. Look both ways for example, a piece by the artist Eleanor, is a piece based on the infrared signals that self-driving car systems use to process their visual input at night. The South Wing is dedicated to algorithmic artwork. We're very pleased to announce that we've just acquired several very early examples of such work dating back to 1962 by the artist Michael Knoll. You'll also find some of the first deep mind prints in that gallery. The West Wing is our music collection. Humans, you'll find headphones on the right hand side of the entryway. Bots. Please have your Bluetooth receivers on and accept an incoming connection request from MNHA West. The music collection is my favorite, I must admit, so I do hope you enjoy that section. And finally the East Wing is our rotating special collection. Right now we're showing a of art made by humans in response to non-human art. You can reach that collection by going to the top floor and taking a left through the big double doors. This will be the first and last time the museum shows human art, I'm told, so check that out while it's still on. Okay, that's all you need to know. Enjoy your visit to the museum, and if you need anything, please don't hesitate to ask. Okay, so on this episode, we're talking about the future of art made by robots, machines, algorithms, computers, generally sort of all kinds of non-human entities. Now, you might have heard about computers making art at some point in the news. In 2015, a Google project called Deep Dream got a lot of attention for generating a whole bunch of super trippy images. Writers at the time called the images produced by Deep Dream Dazzling, druggy, creepy, psychedelic, terrifying, and even grotesque. Slate said that Deep Dream, quote, feels like Google Images on drugs, end quote. 
A year later, in 2016, Sony had a computer write a song called Daddy's Car. Here's what it sounded like. Now, let's be clear about what you just heard. An AI simply wrote the sheet music for this. The lyrics were written by a human, and a human arranged the song. But it's a start, right? It can sometimes feel, when we see news about this kind of stuff, like the concept of machine-generated or mediated art is totally new. But, surprise, it's not. In fact, robots and art go way back. One of the earliest pieces that I have seen is a piece of unknown date exactly. It's probably the 15th or 16th century. It's too fragile to be operated these days, and it's in a museum in Milan. This is Elizabeth Stevens, a researcher at the University of Queensland who studies, among many other things, early examples of automata, which are basically self-operating machines. So before we had robots, and in fact, before we even had the word robots, we had these little machines that could move around and do things, mostly powered by cogs and gears, like clocks. These kinds of automata have been documented going all the way back to the 13th century, when a guy named Ishmael al-Jazari published an incredible book on how to make them. Eventually, his techniques would be used by Europeans to make their own automata. But none of the physical automata from al-Jazari's era survive. So the earliest one that Elizabeth has seen is this one that she was just talking about from the 15th or 16th century. And it is pretty weird. It's a, it's a robot Satan, in effect. It, it, it's delightful. You didn't think you were going to hear about a robot Satan when you started this podcast, I bet. He's a rather buff Satan, it has to be said. He's quite muscly in the torso, and his arms are quite muscular as well. And it is thought that his um, chest panel is actually manufactured out of an early statue of Jesus, which is very interesting from a religious standpoint. He has a, an appropriately devil-looking head. He has some horns. He used to have a collar and a neck piece, but that no longer exists. And he has a tongue that pokes out. That's one of the, you know, the kind of automated uh, parts of Satan. He has a voice box, uh, which is no longer either completely no longer functional or too fragile, you know, to be um, operated. But the idea was, in his original form, he's on wheels as well instead of legs, is that he would roll backwards and forwards, he would poke his tongue out at the crowd, his eyes rolled around, and he made a roaring sound at people. Don't worry, I will post a picture of the robot Satan on the website flashforwardpod.com so you can see what he looks like. Elizabeth says that it's actually hard to tell what people at the time really thought about something like our super buff robo Satan. They might have been totally terrified of it and truly thought that the devil had possessed a statue or something. Or they might have found it 
totally hilarious and delightful. People go into fun fairs these days and go into haunted houses and go on ghost trains because they find that amusing and funny, not because they're genuinely scared. I don't think we should rule that out. This robot Satan is one of the earliest examples of these automata. But you probably wouldn't say that the super jacked robot Satan is creating art. But a few centuries later, you get another related piece of work that's a little bit more complicated. In 1770, a French craftsman created a piece called The Musical Lady. So she sits in front of a small keyboard. She's wearing a nice frock sitting in front of her keyboard. And if you pull the frock up at the back, what you see are a series of very complicated, handmade, extremely fine, there's hundreds of them, cogs and gears. So when the musical lady is brought to life and begins to move, several things happen. Her fingers are articulated, so the fingers actually press the keyboard. So when you hear the music, she is actually playing the keyboard. She's not a music box like a lot of 19th century ones are. Here is what she sounds like in action. The French voice you hear is the curator of the museum where the musical lady now lives. As she plays, her eyes move across the keyboard, so she's following her fingers and the music as she plays. Her head moves, so she's also turning to look at the audience. And she also has a panel in her chest that moves up and down as well under her clothing. So she looks as though, not only as though she's breathing, but as though she's being moved by the music that she plays. It's quite extraordinary and uncanny to see. The music that the musical lady played was actually composed just for her. His son was a composer, so he made the pieces. Um, And they were only ever performed by the musical lady. They were never performed by humans. This was the time of traveling shows like this. So the guy who made the musical lady would take her and other automata that he had created all around Europe to show them to people. Peep shows, for instance, were very popular. They were little boxes that you would look into and they would have these little diorama of various things, you know, in there. There were a whole range of sort of technological visual novelties that are being exhibited all over Europe. And the musical lady was one of the most impressive pieces of work that people had ever seen. They were totally blown away by her and the other automata that this guy created. So what people said in the 18th century when they would see her was, oh my God, that's amazing, is she alive? And so the what consumed everyone was not who wrote the music and whether what she was producing was art, it was that she seemed to be alive. That was 100% what occupied um, the public response to her work. The reason people wondered if she was alive isn't because the musical lady is so visually human-like. She's not like one of those super realistic robots that we see today and think are pretty creepy. They aren't asking if she's human, exactly. But in the 1700s, when these proto-robots started to come onto the scene, philosophers of the day were in the middle of a really heated battle over this question. 
what makes something alive? There was a, a philosopher of the period, um, La Maitre, who wrote a book on the subject called Man and Machine. Um, and the subject was, does human biology operate mechanically according to a regulated system? And if so, can we understand life itself as the result of a series of mechanical processes. Philosophers like Descartes spent a lot of their time thinking about the nature of movement. They thought that perhaps the ability to move required some kind of outside force, some kind of divine or vital spirit. Today, we understand that the ability to move is in fact basically just a mechanical thing. But again, at the time, that wasn't an accepted idea. So you have these philosophers who thought that the ability to move was what made something alive because that something was being animated by a divine vital force. And then you showed these philosophers this musical lady, this robot that could move and could play the piano on her own. And they kind of freaked out. People like La Maitre, for instance, when he was writing philosophically about whether or not biology was mechanical, ended up having to flee uh, the country that he was living in, the Netherlands, um, and go on the lam, in effect, because what he was saying was so contentious. The point here is that robots, or robot-like things, have been involved in art for a very, very long time. And like any other piece of art, they're a product of their time and have long been forcing people to think about the nature of both art and humanity. Even computer art, art mediated by computers specifically, is nearly as old as computers themselves. Pretty much as soon as computers were invented, people started using them to make art. You know, I did my digital computer art programmed first in 1962. But before then, when you said computer, people always put an adjective in front of it. Was it an analog computer or a digital computer? Nowadays, you say computer and people immediately, it's a digital computer, period. But back then, most computers were analog. This is Michael Knoll. He's retired now, but he used to be a computer programmer at Bell Labs in New Jersey. That summer at Bell Labs in 1962, a colleague was using the computer and the graphic output device, the microfilm plotter, and something went wrong with his computer program. So what came out of the plotter was just lines going every which direction. It was just a, a mishmash of, of things. It looked quite crazy and abstract, and he sort of jokingly said, oh, computer art, ha, ha, ha. And I heard him and said, no, let's do it seriously. In 1962, computers were huge. You couldn't just have one in your house, really. Unless you had a large warehouse and major electricity and air conditioning and a fortune to buy one, then you could have one, yes. But Michael had access to these gigantic computers at Bell Labs, and he used them first to create pretty basic line drawings. It was you know, using a digital computer and programming it in the language of choice back then, which was Fortran, and used numbers and used um, various little sub-programs that created numbers that looked random to human beings then feed them into the machine. I made these interesting looking, maybe you'd call them patterns. I certainly had no problem calling them art and all. And I could play with the parameters and after the computer could make 20 or 30 versions on the same theme. I could look at them and say which ones I liked or then decide to tweak some of the 
aspects of the program to tweak it to something more that I liked. And that's what I was doing. Then Michael got interested in seeing if he could make something more complicated. I was in New York City with, with a friend at the ballet, and um, I was watching Stravinsky's Apollo, and the interaction between the dancers on the stage, I thought to me, gee, make little stick figures to do the same thing. And the computer could then be used as a tool by the, by the choreographer to sort of create imagery and, and then make a scores that could be given to the dancers to follow. So that got me interested in doing the computer-generated ballet. The computer-generated ballet actually caught the attention of the BBC, who flew out and did a whole segment on Michael's work. As a computer expert, he was well able to translate his ideas into a computer program. Of course, though, the really essential part of this is the computer program, which enables the individual to communicate his intentions to the computer. For instance, in the computer program to make the computer ballet, which I have here, the first part of it is concerned with setting up the instructions for drawing the stage on the automatic device that produces the pictures. The stage is shown here as consisting of 600 units on each size. So we have here... But the fact that he, the producer, was courageous enough to actually explain a computer program and show Fortran instructions on screen is incredible. The completed program is transferred onto magnetic tape. And the tape, in turn, transmits the program to an automatic device which produces the images. These are displayed on a cathode ray tube. So Michael was creating all of these interesting pieces using these really early computers. And he started to wonder if he could actually create art that was more algorithmic, art that a computer learned to make itself. Mondrian had a certain period where he was doing things that had to do with water and piers and shapes and water. And that culminated in a very abstract piece called Composition with Lines, which sort of circular with a tear-shaped portion at the top and all. So I took that and looked at it and said, gee, I could turn that into an algorithm, which I did, and then let the computer go off and using programs that calculated numbers that were looked random to us, make its version. So now I had two versions. So he took these two versions of the same concept, his version and Mondrian's version, And he started showing them to people without telling them which one was made by a human artist and which one was made by a computer. Which one do you prefer? People didn't know which was which. Majority of the folks preferred the computer version. I'll post images of both of those pieces again on flashforwardpod.com so you can go look at them side by side. Michael even had a gallery show in New York showing this computer art. So even this idea of algorithmic art, something that's in the news today all the time, it's not that new. Nothing is new. But is it art? That's kind of the big question here, right? And we're going to come back to this question a lot in this episode. So let's start answering it by actually going back to the musical lady. Is she a musician? She's creating music using her little robot fingers. You heard the music in that little clip. But is she, in fact, an artist? Is she creating music in the way that a human playing those same notes on that same piano would be? Another one of these automata raises a similar question. The writer, for instance, is, is, is her companion, um, one of the companion pieces. And the writer does pictures and the writer can be programmed, you know, to do um, a range of different pictures, um, actually, and to write sentences as well. One of those sentences is, I think, therefore I am, which is rather um, delightful. So when this little robot draws you a picture, is that drawing art? 
One of the, the pictures that um, he draws, he drew this for me, is a picture of a dog. Now, if I draw a picture of a dog, it would look worse, for one thing, than the, <laughs> than the writer's does. Um, but also, we're undergoing a, a, a range of similar practices, and that is we both have pre-programmed, mine in my brain, him in his uh, cogs, what a dog is accepted to look like, what a generic dog, you know, rather than an individual dog might look like. And then we're reproducing that, as I said, him with more accuracy than me. Many of you listening probably have this gut feeling that, no, the dog that the automata draws is not art because he's just following a code that he was given. But Elizabeth argues that even if the musical lady isn't really a musician and even if the draftsman isn't really an artist, there is still art happening there. If the art is in the affective interaction between the performer and the the human listener, then I think that we can say that art is something produced in the space in which the musical lady plays. It's not the musical lady necessarily that is the artist, but art takes place in that room because there's a strong affective bond that's formed between the, the people who are listening and the person who's performing. So what makes someone or something an artist? Do they have to be human? Is it just impossible for a machine to create art? Often, the response to this question circles around the idea of creativity. If what creativity consists of is adding a certain percentage of novelty or innovation into a practice or into a system that itself is quite regulated. So music, for instance, has to adhere to a range of different criteria in order to work within its genre, in order to work as being a musical piece. And what most musicians do is innovate or change that just enough to sound new, but not enough that people don't actually enjoy um, listening to it. That can probably be programmed as well. And she's right. Actually, that can, in fact, be programmed. And here is the guy who has done it. I totally believe that uh, advancing artificial intelligence requires that we look at um, problems related to creativity, human creativity. I am Ahmad El-Gamal. I am uh, the director of the uh, Art and Artificial Intelligence Lab at Rutgers. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Ahmed's algorithmic artwork and what a museum of this kind of work would even look like. But before we take our quick break, I recently asked some patrons to record their thoughts on this question. Can computers make art? And here are two disagreeing answers. Hi, Rose. This is Samir Ajmani recording uh, my thoughts on whether computers can create art. So the first time I started thinking about this question was back in college when Douglas Hofstetter came to my university and gave a talk about a system called EMI, spelled E-M-I. EMI was a computer program that could generate classical music pieces in the style of famous composers. And the demo, he explained, Professor Hofstetter explained how the system worked and uh, demonstrated it by having a live pianist play pieces by Bach and then pieces generated by EMI. And they showed how an older version of the program, you could pretty much tell the the computer-generated piece was kind of repetitive, didn't have a lot going on. But by the end of the lecture, the you know he had a pianist play both a piece by a composer and a piece by Emmy, 
and asked the audience to vote which one was the real one and we were split 50-50. The audience couldn't tell. And so this was really convincing, really compelling. Oh, great. Computers can generate music. But later, as I sort of learned how this kind of uh, generative music is created, um, you realize that what it's doing is it's learning, the machine is learning patterns in the music and then using that to generate new pieces. So it's not really creating. It's more not in the original sense. It's essentially remixing what humans have already come up with. And that doesn't really feel like original art. It doesn't feel like it. Not yet. Not something novel. Not something that captures the spirit. So those are my thoughts. Hi, Rose. Answering your question of can computers, robots, create arts? Uh, yes, of course they can. Uh, arts just requires some agent behind it and once we can ascribe some agency to robots, computers, uh, they can make art. We can talk about some dunes in the desert being beautiful and, ma and magnificent and their shapes being splendid, um, but until we think of some creator, some agent behind them, uh, we wouldn't call them art. If a graphic designer is just following a recipe and putting together an ad for Pepsi, that's not going to be art. But if they are creating their own elements and uh, exacting some agency on the Pepsi ad, then they are creating some art. Art requires an artist. So when computers are creating things that they weren't specifically told to create, that's art. And I guess that happens both in bugs that muck up computer systems and definitely in deep learning. Thanks for listening. This is Luke Glidden. Goodbye. Thanks, you guys. Those are both really interesting thoughts. Okay, now a quick break, and then we're going to hear about Ahmed's algorithm. We're back. So let's go back to Rutgers, where Ahmed has his algorithms making art. Basically, what Ahmed wanted to do was figure out if he could train an algorithm to be creative. That is, to look at a whole bunch of art and then generate something brand new that nobody had seen before. So first, they fed the algorithm images from the history of art. We basically saw images of art, Western art in particular, from um, 14th century all the way till uh, uh, year 2000, basically. So five uh, centuries worth of data um, of art history, um, altogether about 80,000 images. These 80,000 images came from the publicly available WikiArt database, which means that they were pretty heavily biased towards Western art, since that's what the database mostly has. And 80,000 is a big number, but when you think about how much art humans have produced over the entire history of human art production, it's not really that much. So that's one limitation here. But the algorithm gets all of these pieces of art, it looks at them, and then it produces new work. And the algorithm in question here is what's called a generative adversarial network. We've actually talked about these before on the show, back in the episode called Unreal, which was all about a future in which anybody can generate fake videos of people doing pretty much anything. 
But just to refresh your memories, an adversarial network is a network that basically competes against itself. That's the adversarial bit. One half of the algorithm generates something and essentially tries to get the other half of the network to believe that the thing it has generated is new and good enough. The idea behind most of these adversarial networks is that there's no human involvement. The algorithm is continually improving itself. It's a, like a game between two players. One player uh, who has the data and hide it, doesn't, don't, don't show it to the other player. And the other player has to guess what, what the data looks like. But Ahmed tweaked his network to do something a little bit different than the traditional adversarial networks. What we did was a modification to this um, to, to make it more creative. Because just um, generating data um, will not be able to generate art. Because art is not about just uh, imitating what happened before. That will not be art. Uh, we believe art, uh, to make a, um, art, it has to be novel. You have to make new art every time. So if you give a machine um, lots of images of uh, art from art history, and its goal is just to uh, generate similar um, images, this will not be called art. This will be called emulation of art. The key thing here is that you don't want the computer to go too far in a new direction, because if it gets too far away from what people are used to seeing, it might not make something that people like. So the game that Ahmed had his algorithm playing with itself was basically designed to make the output just a little bit new. Not too new, not too out there, but new enough that the output felt interesting and fresh. So the machine here is under two opposing forces. One force that will um, uh, push it to uh, make novel things, uh, doesn't fit existing style. But the other force will pull it back, not to go very far away from uh, the, the aesthetics uh, that uh, appeared in art history. So uh, as a result, the machine starts to generate um, very interesting images. Uh, you can see right away that the machine learned the aesthetics. So it shows good colors, it shows um, good compositions, uh, color contrast between foreground, foreground and background. Again, I will post the images that the algorithm put out on flashforwardpod.com if you want to see them. They're really interesting looking, and I actually really like some of them. And in fact, Ahmed decided to put these images to the same test that Michael did. Can people tell that they were made by an algorithm or not? To figure this out, he showed people a mixture of images, some generated by his algorithm and some generated by real human artists shown at a big art show called Art Basel. In general, people cannot tell the difference. If you ask them a question about whether this is done by the machine or done by, by human artists, they won't tell. But uh, also when they ask them to uh, describe the work, whether it's intentional, whether it has a visual structure, whether it's communicating to you, whether it's inspiring to you to certain degrees, um, people rated uh, the artwork done by the machine at the same level or even higher than the one done by human. So if you, uh, as a human, look at an artwork and describe it as inspiring or as communicating, then you basically you see it as art. You don't see it as just uh, something happening at random. So you basically you receive it as an art. Uh, and that's basically the way we concluded that um, the machine succeeded in making uh, visual forms uh, that we, uh, we actually um, um, see it as art. Now, there are a couple things that I want to highlight about the algorithm here. First, it pretty much never puts out art in the style of, say, a Renaissance painting, because it's designed to try and do something new. It's never going to create a painting that plays with or satirizes older styles. 
which is something that some really incredible artists do, right? They take an older style and they do something to it to make a point. So take, for example, Kahinde Wiley, who you might know as the guy who painted Barack Obama's presidential portrait. He has a whole series of paintings where he places black bodies into more old school styles. So like Michael Jackson riding a very classical Napoleon-esque horse. Nodding back to these styles to make a point is not something that Ahmed's algorithm is ever going to do. The other thing I think is interesting to bring up about Ahmed's work is that we actually have no idea how the algorithm is processing the art that it's fed and coming up with the resulting images. This is one of those really weird things about some kinds of algorithms. They're essentially just like black boxes. Ahmed doesn't know what the algorithm is doing when it looks at the images it's being trained on, nor does he know how it recombines that information to create what it puts out. Um, that's an interesting thing. I mean, we don't know exactly how to break it down. We, we, the only thing we know is that we give it all these volume of images and the styles, and uh, it starts from random and it tries to generate art that simulate that, and then it starts to generate art that uh, doesn't fit into styles. What it actually learned out of that is very hard to encode. And in some ways, that actually makes it kind of more like a human, right? Human artists look at a lot of art, and that kind of marinates around and helps them create their own pieces but they probably couldn't break down for you exactly how they came to the thing that they did, exactly which pieces they pulled and recombined from the past stuff that they saw. Just like Ahmed's algorithmic outputs, it's always kind of a surprise. I'm always surprised by what the machine generates because um, I press a button and I never knew or expect what it generates next. So that's, what the, that's the best thing about it. That's when I, when I felt that it makes art because... Uh, I have um, no way to expect uh, what I did next. Okay, so at this point, we've talked about a lot of different kinds of art made by algorithms and computers and machines. But at the top of the show, you heard a tour guide giving a tour of a museum full of this art, which means that curators and critics have decided that not only is this stuff art, it's art worthy of putting in a big, fancy museum. So I wanted to know from actual curators and art critics how they think about these kinds of pieces. And it turns out that art critics aren't actually all that different from art algorithms after all. Um, so the Perfect. first thing that comes to mind as you were speaking, and I haven't really thought about much until now, was how much I have in common with machines and algorithms. Because basically, to me, the first thing that happens when I walk into a museum or a gallery or any exhibition is that it brings to mind things that I've seen before. Right, The job of being an art critic is just to have a really strong visual memory and to have seen a lot of art and to know that that visual background is what allows you to judge things, to contextualize them, to think about them in relationship to the history of art, in relationship to what other people are making right now, and in relationship to like what is happening in studios around town. This is Orit Gott, a writer and art critic based in London. I'm, like, I'm trying to think about the kind of things that algorithms produce and what they produce is something that came from analysis of other images, which is not exactly how I think of art making traditionally, but is how I think about art criticism. And one of the big things she said matters to her as a critic is thinking about the context of the piece at hand. 
So we talked about those 1770 automata and how they were inherently connected to the philosophical debates of the day. But it's not just those pieces. You can say the same for Michael Knowles' work at Bell Labs. But the computers that he was using were used for really specific things. And whatever it is, like whatever drawings he could make out of them, those computers were also designed to like test out atomic bomb responses. You think about who the artist is and if the artist is the algorithm itself or the robot itself or the person who built that algorithm and robot and then kind of released them to let it be. Obviously, it replicates some kind of traits of human traits of the people who designed them. And those human traits are often the ones of the corporation who like, had the funding to design it. This is how curators think. They're not necessarily just interested in what a piece of art looks like. They're also interested in what it says and what it's interacting with. So for my practice and working with artists, one very important thing is how can we get out of this box of imagining what is technology? What are the other possible futures that might unfold? And what's the relationship of technology and history and what it was historically? This is Zhao Yu Wang, a curator at the Guggenheim in New York City. Zhao Yu was responsible for commissioning a piece called Can't Help Myself, which was displayed at the Guggenheim as part of an exhibit called Tales of Our Time, full of art about the concept of place as interpreted by Chinese artists. We're looking at rethink the ideas of geographic boundaries and how do you define a place. Um, and this place, of course, is what we were talking about as the greater China and how do you understand it, whether it is a geographic concept or a cultural concept or is it a place or is it somewhere kind of remote um, in the Far East, as we used to call it. Can't Help Myself was a big installation piece that engaged with these ideas of borders and surveillance and mechanization programmed and conceived and realized by the artist duo Sun Yuan and Peng Yu, based in Beijing. They're a couple, um, they have been working together um, since the 90s, and they also have their independent practice, but also make works as a collective. The artist was interested in how sort of the concept of surveillance and how nowadays we are always under constant surveillance and supervision by not our fellow human beings, but uh, by these machines and um, digital technologies. Um, so the robotic arm was served as a metaphor uh, in commenting these issues of border control and surveillance. So we'll describe the piece, but again, I have images and video of it on the website. So in the museum, you will see it was situated in a um, glass container. But just imagine it's a giant gas container and the structure was built from floor to ceiling and the machine was inside of it. In the middle of the glass box is this huge robotic arm, like something you'd see on a factory floor or in an assembly line. And then there was a puddle of liquid on the floor in the museum gallery and the color mimics and the consistency in the color mimics blood. Um, but of course, it's not real blood. It's a chemical composition that the artist came up with. Our conservator worked on. We worked on it together. When the piece begins, the red liquid starts to spill out from the center where the arm is. And up in the ceiling, there are two little sensors that basically watch the liquid spread. So the sensor kind of monitors whether the liquid sp uh, spills over the boundary or not. 
And as soon as it goes over this boundary, the machine will be activated um, to shovel it back within its contained territory. At the end of the robotic arm is kind of like a big squeegee. And when the robot isn't corralling the blood around the container, it has some pre-programmed movements that it does. So the machine is kind of doing this very strange, bizarre dance in the gallery. And like I said, when the liquid spills over, the movement will be switched from these dents to shoveling the liquid back. Essentially, it looks like this gigantic robot arm is squeegeeing blood and then dancing about it. There is this very haunting kind of psychological effect because you're as if you're looking at some giant animal. And of course, there is this very intimidating feeling. Um, but in the meantime, everything is in full control because there is this uh, separation between the machine and the human. And getting this robotic piece into the Guggenheim was actually a pretty intense technical challenge. They tested it um, in China, and the machine then later was shipped to the United States. Then we actually had to install a very specific anchor underneath the machine in the museum because it's so heavy. We just need to stabilize it um, and also make sure the floor can uh, hold on to the weight because Guggenheim is a landmark building and historical architecture. So it is a challenge also for us to figure out all these engineer details. In fact, the internal conversations about this piece and how to build it and how to make it safe in the building, they were all kind of these like meta explorations of some of the things that the art itself was trying to highlight. It was interesting when we first started to talk about the piece, when the artist brought it up and saying we would love to use the robotic arm. Um, the exhibition management service team from the museum immediately uh, raised a lot of questions in terms of how there could be a malfunction and there could be um, mistakes in the program that potentially or, you know, um, theoretically something could happen. And that also sort of, I think, metamorphed from a technical question to a very interesting philosophical question. So I'm more interested as a curator, and I'm sure from the artist's perspective, uh, these psychological kind of reaction and effect that the work had, um, not only on the visitors, but also uh, in, in the institution, in the museums, and people who are working on these projects. I think this is really interesting because it kind of gets at the premise of this episode, right? We have a museum that opens up for non-human art. But the way that museum is constructed is going to say a lot about the art itself and is in itself almost a piece of art. In fact, Zhao Yu thinks that the act of just thinking about this fake museum of ours is probably more interesting than actually trying to build it. I think a museum of, you know, machine-made art or kind of these uh, algorithm-based art is itself much more interesting as a concept than perhaps the result of it. And I think she might be right. Orit said some similar things, too. Like, when we think about the specifics of this museum, it starts to get really weird. Like, can we even evaluate and judge art made by non-humans? It's totally possible that in this museum of inhuman or non-human made art that you're describing, the work made by the algorithm is something that, just like the work of the algorithm, we can't understand. When us humans are standing in this museum and looking at a piece that a machine has made, can we even really understand what's going on? 
if the result ends up being something that looks like the deep dream images, and so we recognize that it starts with one image and it's been trained to see cats, and then it creates this like crazy image of like a landscape with a thousand cat eyes, and it's like haunting and quote unquote dreamy and weird. Part of it is that we try to explain why it did that, and we're like, oh, we fed it specific information, it was trained to look for this information. But in the machine logic, that could be a masterpiece. One of the things that has to happen with, say, Ahmed's algorithmic output is that a human eventually picks out which pieces they want to show people and display from the output. That's for a couple of reasons, of course, but one of them is purely computational. We humans could not actually process or look at all the images that the machine can make. We just don't have time. But that's a human problem. Only the human visitors need a selection. The machine visitors could assess more information. So in theory, you could have a museum that actually does show all of these images. It just doesn't show them to us. And then there's a the question of who even picks the pieces to begin with. You would say that there would be two versions of curating in a museum like that, right? One would be like purely algorithmic somehow, like you would build an algorithm that would also curate the exhibits. And the other would be of a curatorial, I guess, team or a direction, which, I mean, part of the thing about an exhibition is that bringing works together is meant to make meaning, right? It changes the work. If you're going to an exhibition and you see more than one work on view, somehow they make context for each other. Um, so what is it like? Do you bring the work of, say, a computer and a robot at the same time, do they see in the same way? Is this something that the exhibition space can explore somehow by just looking at those works at the same time? And who writes the labels for the pieces? How do we develop a language around a museum where nothing was made by humans? And how do you make sure you're even reproducing the work properly? If you're going to print them, then you're relying on a human eye to make sure that the color matches and things like that. So like, are you going to build another machine that then assesses the prints and compares them to the digital files? Eventually, Orit wonders if the machines themselves would become their own art critics. That's also why I'm so interested in machine vision. It was like, these machines pay attention to what they look at. And if we just taught them enough, they might, their analysis might become critical. During our interview, I showed Orit the highest and lowest ranked images that came out of Ahmed's algorithm. And her reaction was kind of surprising to me. I'm curious what you think of these, these you know, worst ones. Yeah, I'm interested um, in the ranking of it. <laughs> since that's my job, basically. I think the lower ranked ones are much better. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. So much of this fake future museum assumes that humans are going to be able to accurately see and think about images made by machines that were made by humans, probably to do something else originally. It's like this weird kaleidoscope where we create something to create something and then try to create a system to judge that something when, in fact, it might have already gotten away from us. So if we did want to build a museum to house the best or most interesting non-human art, we would kind of be engaging in this weird upside-down exercise, picking work that we had a hand in making 
but that wasn't necessarily made for us. The point of it will be to ask a question about why we see what is it that about human intent that we see in machine-made things? And that is really telling. Like that, I think, much more significant than the question of like fooling people is the question of why do we want to see ourselves in something that has nothing to do with us? That's all for this future. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Evelyn. The intro music is by Asura, and the outro music is by Hasselonia. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. Special thanks to our guests this week, Elizabeth Stevens, Michael Knoll, Ahmed Elgamal, Orit Gott, and Zhaoyu Wang. You can learn more about all of their work via the links in the show notes. And if you want to see pictures of any of the art pieces that we described in this episode, head to flashforwardpod.com where you'll find a blog post that has all of that and more, including additional reading and resources. If you want to suggest a future we should take on, send us a note on Twitter, Facebook, or by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. I love hearing your ideas. And if you think you've spotted one of the little references that I've hidden in this episode, email me there too. If you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that, too. Head to flashforwardpod.com support for more about how to give. But if that's not in the cards for you, you can head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice review. Or just tell your friends about the show. That really does help. Okay, that's all for this future. Come back next time and we'll travel to a new one. <laughs>